Lord, we thank you for tonight. <clears throat> Lord, as we gather, um, we know that there's, there's a lot of different people here in different places, and I know that your word is uh, sufficient to, uh, to do what you desire for it to do. And so there may be some here that uh, never heard about Jesus. They hear about Jesus through the lives of Jacob and his offspring. There may be some here who um, need reminding in, in ways of the way the family's put together and you're designed for it. There may be some who are being self-serving. There may be some of us who are, um, who've taken our eye off of you for a season and need to be reminded of your ways. Whatever it might be, Lord, we just pray that you would let this time be fruitful. Uh, let it be for your glory. And I pray that uh, the saints will truly be equipped for work of ministry uh, during this study. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn to Genesis 29. Last week, we started the family-friendly study of Jacob waking up to a surprise, and we will continue in that this week. Uh, a couple things. Our last uh, Wednesday night study, is this on? Is the mic on? Not that I think we need it, but I just don't think it's on. Test. Test one. I thought about having nap time tonight, and I knew I wouldn't get any arguments. Um, we've got three Wednesdays left before we have a summer break. During the summer months, we have uh, Wednesdays open. And so uh, we've got this Wednesday, next Wednesday, and the following. And I'm thinking that we'll get through chapter 30. Uh, I'd like to get through chapter 31, but that chapter is 55 verses, and I just don't know if it's going to happen. But we'll get at least through chapter 30. And so tonight is Jacob, Leah, and Rachel part three. Kind of gave it away, but who did Jacob get married to last week? Yes, Leah and her sister Rachel. And that's a problem why? Yeah, because you said two names and their sisters. We ended last week with the very illustrious, clear comment of uh, don't marry your cousin. If you do, don't marry her sister as well. That was kind of our conclusion last week. It was very helpful to all of us. Um, what did Jacob do when he realized he had uh, consummated with the wrong sister? Dribbled violently. I'm going to keep it. <laughs> Hank, what happened? Um, did he say, Leah, what are you doing here? Who did he run to? Yeah, Laban. Why? Yeah, what did you do to me? Uh, he went straight to Laban, and how did Laban respond to Jacob? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's not customary that we give the uh, older, or the, the younger before the older. Surely you know what that's like. And at that point, you can imagine Jacob thinking about tricking his dad and taking the blessing from Esau. It's very ironic, the whole circumstance. But he just essentially says, it's not natural to give the younger before the older. Surely you understand that. Um, and then, uh, then what does Laban do? 
Because Jacob's like, no, really, I love Rachel. I'm not, I'm not really into Leah. And so Laban does what? Wait a week and you have Rachel. So it's not natural to give the younger before the older. However, I'll let both sisters marry the same man because that's perfectly fine, right? That's, there's nothing messed up about that. That's very messed up. I'm being facetious. That's, that's not right. That's very much against the laws of nature in many, many ways. And there's going to be some trouble in the household, which is what we'll see. Um, when two people come together and make a deal, what are some of the things that happen when one of them doesn't hold up his end of the deal? Because Laban and Jacob made a deal, right? And who didn't hold up his end of the deal? Laban. Laban. Okay, so what are some things that, that happen when that occurs? Anger. Conflict, to put it lightly. Yeah, trust is out the window. No perichoresis going on there like the opposite of it. Uh, how could Laban have kept the whole mess from taking place? Yeah. He, he served for Rachel for seven years. I mean, climb into the story and imagine what this is like. He sees her. He loves her. He moves big heavy rock from well, wanting to impress her. He meets the family. He's back. He shares all the things that his mom and dad had told him. They said, surely you are my, my bone and my flesh. And um, they make the deal. He serves for seven years, surely out in the field. He's having daydreams about Rachel and her beauty. And he can't wait for her to be his wife. And all of these things are going on. And uh, after seven years, they, they throw a party and have a wedding feast. And it's, it's for Rachel and Jacob. And then it comes time to consummate the marriage, and it turns out that it was uh, Leah. And so for seven years, he's serving for Rachel to prove that he's worth, you know, his weight, essentially, that he, that he will provide for, uh, for his wife, that he, he's a hard worker and he's not just a talker. And it all could have been cleared up if from the get-go, Laban would have said, you know, I, I'm thankful that you're interested in Rachel, but it's not customary that she would get married before Leah. And I'm guessing that Jacob probably would have waited. He worked for seven years. That's an indicator that he probably would have waited. So the whole thing could have turned out different had, um, had Laban been up front, up front. Had he been up front, up front. Is that clear? It's the least clear thing I've ever said. Um, uh, so, but we're also going to find that God obviously has his hand in this whole thing. So two things. I want to clear up something from last week. I suggested last week that Jacob's mistake in sleeping with Leah must have been caused at least in part by alcohol. Uh, this week, I still suggest that. However, I read something else that sheds more light, light on it, the darkness. Um, read this week another possibility that darkness in a world without artificial lighting can be pitch black. Like we have lots of artificial lighting, so if you turn the lights off, there's still light, right? And in the Near East, they're saying darkness in a world without artificial lighting can be pitch black. Take that pitch blackness plus a veil, and that can make it difficult to tell between Leah and Rachel. I personally think that a combination of the three is the likely cause. Darkness without artificial lighting, a veil, and probably a little drunkenness. Our patriarchs tended to have an issue with that. Um, so I want to clear that up. I read something that shed more light on that. So, Also, 
in this narrative as we jump back into it. You know, we use humor because so much of it's ridiculous. I mean, you got, you know, old man River leaving the home, you know, putting on his big boy pants at 70, going to find a woman, moving the big rock to impress her. He wakes up and it's Leah, the ugly sister. We kind of giggle about that. Um, but in all of this, I really want us to make sure that, um, that we don't lose sight of how sad this is. Uh, this is a very, 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 very sad narrative. I'm, we're in the, Lindsay and I and some other people are in the middle of a CPS training class. And it, you're, t- you're talking about um, the abuse of children for three hours at a time. And it's sad. It's the saddest thing you've ever been a part of. You've ever heard, things you're hearing are just heartbreaking. Um, but there's humor along the way that you can kind of, it's kind of a relief. And so we use humor as a relief as we're reading through this, but I really don't want us to lose sight that, that this is, in fact, a very, very sad uh, story because of how God's ways are being abandoned um, for, for their own ways. So uh, let's look at verses um, Genesis 29. I'm going to start in 15, 29 15 just to kind of get us a little precursor, and then I'll read through 30, 24. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? As I'm reading this again, import your senses into this narrative. It's written in a way where it's a story, and you can imagine the characters, you can imagine the setting, you can imagine the responses, the facial expressions. Import your senses into this and try to see what they're seeing and feel what they're feeling. Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to her, give her to you, than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Done. So Laban gathered all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. That's important later on in the story. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Oh, how dare you be so deceitful? Laban said, It's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. The wedding feast and celebration was actually a week long. It's kind of honeymoon. It's our, our picture of that. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave, Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard me, heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be, will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. 
And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. That's funny. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali or Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. How many wives does Jacob have now? Four. That's three too many. Then Leah, uh, Leah's servant bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. Good fortune. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of weed harvest, this, it gets weirder. If you don't think it's weird already, it's about to get even weirder. In the days of weed harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought her to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. She said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for some of your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. A big fight there, yeah. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar, or Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. It's not, import, uh, it's not normally included, uh, a daughter in the genealogy, but um, something happens in chapter 34, which makes it important for us to know where she came from. That's why her name's there. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. All right. Jacob is a busy boy, this chapter, to say the least. Jacob starts out in verse 28 of chapter 29. Uh, 29, 28. Go ahead and turn back there. Complete her week of this one. You'll give her, Jacob did so and completed a week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Uh, Laban gave his female servant to Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. 
Jacob really loves Rachel. This is a starting point because we're going to see a shift over the course of the chapter because of how jacked up the family dynamic is. We're going to see some stress put on the family that causes emotions to fall away and true things to shine through. And we need to keep our eye on that. But starting out, he really loves hot Rachel, who he moved the big rock for. He loves Rachel and he agrees to the new terms of the deal. So how much longer is he going to serve? Seven more years, making a total of how many years? Fourteen years, okay. While arranged marriages are not uncommon, Laban shows in this arrangement that he is indeed treating his daughters as objects to be purchased. This is a sad thing that Laban is doing. He says it's not natural for the older to, uh, to wait or to be married uh, after the younger, yet he gives both of them to the same man. It's unnatural and it's sad and disgusting in many ways. So here we are. Jacob is Laban's servant, living under Laban's roof, trying to be a husband to both of Laban's daughters. Oh, also trying to be a husband to both of Laban's daughter's servants. You think this might get a little complicated. I mean, th- this is about to get crazy, crazy complicated. Immediately we see, uh, we see why God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. When you see uh, one dude married to four women bearing, I counted up, I believe it's 11 males, one female by four women in about eight or nine years. Imagine the household. That's crazy. When you see something this jacked up, just let it serve as a reminder that God's design is between one man and one woman. And when you abandon that and go down another road, you're going to see complications that um, are almost unspeakable. Um, how do we see it here? What's the first thing we see in verse 30? So Jacob went in uh, to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, served Laban for another seven years. How do we see just a reminder that God's uh, design is for marriage between one man and one woman? What's Jacob do right off the bat? Well, um, let me rephrase that question. Huh? Favorites, yeah. Yeah, Jacob immediately showed preference to Rachel over Leah. So immediately, there's, there's contention, there, there's strife, there, there's stress, because he's showing preference to the one he really wanted to marry in the first place. Verse 31, uh, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. We're reminded here that uh, God is not absent and aloof. When this happens, when this kind of calamity comes about, God is not removed and aloof and unaware, but in fact, we see God as the one who opens wombs and closes wombs. Interestingly, here, we see the opening of Leah's womb is merciful because she was hated. And I want to know, why do you all think God did this? God opens Leah's womb, it says, as a sign of mercy because she was hated. Why do you all think God did this? Okay. So why did is he trying to quit the jealousy or make it worse or like I don't have an answer to this question. I really want some conversation because I'm looking at it and I'm saying that's weird, right? Self-serving, scheming. Oh, I'm not. I'm not loved. I'm hated. But God opens her womb. What? Why do y'all think that might be? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, if she's not being loved by her husband, and God's saying, I will show you love. You know? Say that again? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's another indicator of how sad this chapter really is. There's a lot of women who um, can sadly be married to a man that doesn't love them. And what ends up happening is that that woman will have a son who will help out with things and, and be a provider and, and show care. That's a sad situation. Why else? So the situation that will bring about the full tribe? Yeah, yeah. This jacked up chapter, we're going to go into this in a, probably when we come back from the summer. If I were to say, we're going to talk tonight about how the 12 tribes of Israel came together. You probably wouldn't be thinking of some Jerry Springer narrative that's really messed up. Four women, one man, eight or nine years, total scandal, total deceit, disgusting. That's the 12 tribes of Israel, through which Christ would come from the tribe of Judah. That's the origins. So we'll talk more about that later, but yeah, there's a lot more going on here than we can see. And it's probably not the story we would have expected to see the 12 tribes of Israel. The names that will be written on the gates in heaven when we get there. These fools' names. And they, they, they're boneheads too. Like when we keep going to the chapters, they're, they're making some serious mistakes too. All right. Um, consider a connection between these two verses. In verse 30, Leah was less loved, neglected, given the cold shoulder in verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So you, you see in verse 30, you see preference to Rachel and not preference given to Leah. You see a neglect there. In verse 31, what does God say that she was? Hated. God says she was hated. Um, Calvin makes a comment on this, and I'm, I'm just going to read what he said because um, I tried to put it in my own words, and it sounded dumb. And when he wrote what he wrote, it sounded really good. So I'm going to read that because um, he's smarter than me. Uh, it says this. She was not loved so much as she ought to have been. He's, he's speaking of Leah. He's saying she was not loved so much as she ought to have been, for she was not intolerable to Jacob. Neither did he pursue her with hatred. But Moses, by use of this word, amplifies his fault in not having discharged the duty of a husband and in not having treated her who was his first wife with adequate kindness and honor. It is of importance carefully to notice this because many think they fulfill their duty if they do not break out into mortal hatred. Many think they fulfill their duty as a husband because they don't break out into mortal hatred. But we see that the Holy Spirit pronounces those as hated who are not sufficiently loved. Hated because they're not sufficiently loved. Moreover, with respect to married persons, though they may not openly disagree, yet if they are cold in their affection towards each other, this disgust is not far removed from hatred. See why I read that and didn't try to put it in my own words? That's really well stated. He's saying that um, this disgust is not far removed from hatred. What are some ways that affections can be cold towards one another in marriage? 
Maybe not your own, but whatever. What are some ways that kind of the cold shoulder can, can come about? Where it doesn't look like hatred, but this is saying maybe it's more hatred than it is love. I knew this was going to happen on this question. I'm not saying anything. I'm not sure I understand the question. Okay. What are some indicators that there is coldness in marriage that may not be stated as simply hatred? Like when you don't make the coffee for Cindy, what would your motive be by not making the coffee? Because you're mad, okay? <laughs> Coldness. You didn't throw coffee at her. You simply did not make her coffee. Okay? You didn't throw coffee at her, right? No, sir. Good, good. <laughs> not talking. Yeah, we can be generic. You don't have to be specific. You can be somewhat vague. Not talking. Tone of voice, absolutely. Separate lives. Not calling. Not calling. Sort of like dividing up Uh huh. Yeah, I got this. Yeah, just coexisting. Yeah. Not living in an understanding way. For a husband, this might be, I've been convicted of this lately for sure, is um, the call in a husband's life to wash his wife with the water of the word, where coldness can cause you to say, I don't want to sit down and put the Bible and go through this right now. Um, and that may be more, uh, not as far removed from hatred as we might think. Don't think anything else? This should remind us of verses like don't let the sun go down on your anger and things of that sort. Um, another point that I want to consider in this verse is that God is showing Jacob that God has plans that are not to be ignored. God's not aloof and distant and disconnected in this whole thing. God is showing Jacob, I'm God and I have plans that won't be ignored. If things had gone according to Jacob's plan, what would the situation be? If it had gone according to Jacob's plan. Would have married Rachel. Would have been out seven years. Yeah. What else? Leah would have just been that sister he met that one time, who was unfortunately not as pretty as his wife. What else? Simple as that. He'd be married to Rachel. Why are Jacob's plans not happening? It's not about Jacob. It's not about what Jacob wants. What is it about? God's will. So this would indicate that God's saying, Jacob, I know you think Rachel's pretty. I have different plans. Now, this is a little weird, uh, but God is saying he has different plans. Why is Leah bearing children for Jacob and Rachel is not? That's what God decided would happen. This gets a little weird, right? These are God's purposes, and he will accomplish all of them. What? Was, there, was there an obedience factor going on here on, on someone's part? Yes, absolutely. 
Yes. Yeah. Sorry. You, you, you phrase things in ways where I'm not sure if you're catching me or not. You know, is there an obedience factor? Would you say? Yes, I would. Yeah. Uh, with Jacob, uh, yeah, there's an obedience factor here for sure. Who, who, I think so. Um, who is, I am Ron Burgundy. Who is, uh, who, who is Jacob married to first? Leah. So Jacob is the husband of Leah. Okay. So according to God's way, what is Jacob supposed to be doing towards Leah? Respect, honor, love, cherish. But Leah's ugly. Is that unfair? <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I feel like I'm on eggshells right now because, like, I'm not supposed to talk bad about Leah. Uh, Leah's a schemer. Let's not lose sight of that here. She, she, um, she was not totally innocent in this whole thing. She was part of the plan. Uh, she was not just present, but active, if you know what I mean. Um, she's not totally innocent here. And so um, it, it's hard because when I'm looking at this story, just even as I read through it again this afternoon, I'm thinking, well, that's not fair. Well, he really loved her. And what about this? And, and uh, really, none of them are innocent. They're all very, very self-serving throughout this entire narrative. Um, uh, Honestly, when I read these, I'm taken back, and I think to myself, God, that doesn't seem right. Rachel's the pretty one, and Jacob loves her. All the while, God is saying to all of them and us, there's a much bigger picture going on here. God has a plan that has more to do with just the love he has for the pretty girl at the well. There's more going on here. Like we said, for one, we know now these are the 12 tribes of Israel being born through these four women and one old dude. Um, uh, God's saying that there's much more going on. He says, I have ordained that Leah be your wife, and you must pay her respect and honor that is appropriate from a husband. Neglect is inappropriate. God is saying, in effect, neglect misrepresents who I am. Turn to Isaiah 45.7. I ran across this verse this week again and thought it was appropriate to this um, really jacked up story. The prophet Isaiah was, uh, he prophesied over the reign of five different kings. There was a lot of hard times for the Israelites. Um, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah uh, were not as closely linked as they should have been. The Assyrians came in, laid waste to northern Israel um, and conquered uh, Samaria, that whole area. And at one point, what's left is Judah and Benjamin in the south. Um, there's a lot of calamity. The people of Israel are suffering. This is just before the Babylonian exile, about 100 years or so before the Babylonian exile. And th the point is there's ups and downs. There are outside factors that are really negatively affecting the people of Israel. And they're crying out saying, you know, what's going on? We're trying to do this. We're, try we're, we're showing up on time. We're going through. We're doing what you tell us to do. And God's saying you're not being wholehearted. But God's explaining their circumstances. And he says this in 45.7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. It's interesting because in this section in Genesis, this calamity is caused in part by darkness. You know, what we just said earlier, 
Um, this calamity is caused in part by darkness. And so it's, it's kind of like, does God ordain that we sin? No. Does God use sin to, for kingdom good? Can he take what one meant for evil and use it for the benefit of a kingdom people? Absolutely. That's one of his promises that we cling to. But here, I form light and create dark and darkness. I make well-being and calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That is something we very, very easily lose sight of in the midst of calamity. In the midst of calamity, what, what is our default mode? What do we normally do? Yeah, uh, attribute to Satan. What else can we do in the midst of calamity? What? Yeah, blame God. We're going to see that here in a minute. What else? Ask for deliverance, which is fine. We have despair. Very rarely in the middle of calamity do we very sober-mindedly say, Lord, yes, thank you for this calamity that I'm in the middle of. Clearly, you have a greater purpose in it. A lot of times we need someone to walk alongside us and say, hey, you're in a seriously weird season, a hard season. Um, I understand that you're depressed and frustrated and angry and, and just flat tired, but you've got to know that God has a greater purpose in this. You've got to know that God's still doing things. This calamity doesn't happen outside of what God um, has already ordained for, to happen. And so usually that's the person we want to punch in the throat when we're in that circumstance that things are bad and they're saying, God's got a bigger plan. And you're like, ah, don't tell me that. I just want to be mad. But the reality is, is he does. He says, I create light and darkness. I, um, I create light and darkness. I make well-being and calamity. Um, and this calamity in Genesis is caused in part by darkness. Look back at uh, Genesis 29, 32. What I'm getting at, but don't want to too boldly say, is that it looks like God intended that he was married to Leah more so than Rachel. I want to be careful saying that because there's a lot of things that happen here that's a calamity that I would say God absolutely has his hand in. But um, I want us to see clearly uh, that that's part of God's plan, that he would marry Leah even though she's not as pretty. Look at verse 32. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now uh, my husband will love me. Sadly, uh, we still see this a lot, right? A woman getting pregnant in hopes of getting the man to stay around. And be very careful about this. This is a very sensitive subject. But what happened here in Genesis thousands of years ago um, is not far removed from our culture today. A woman getting pregnant in hopes that the man will stay around. How does this normally play out? Huh? Badly. Badly, yeah. What usually happens? Yeah, guy doesn't stay around. And what and what ends up happening to the kid? Fatherless. That's bad. God says he doesn't like fatherless children, or he doesn't like that children are fatherless. He loves fatherless children. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, usually it's not so great. Um, the young mom and new child are often sadly, sadly neglected, uh, giving 
Way to the solicitations of the flesh and then playing the victim is something we've seen a lot, and that's usually what happens. A man or woman gives way to the solicitations of the flesh. A child is born. You play the victim. I can't do this. This is too hard for me. Well, you're going to be the victim or are you going to man up? Sadly, um, uh, very few men in this situation actually man up. Some do, but usually that's not how it happens. Usually when a relationship is so um, divided, not centered on the Lord... And someone says, I'm going to have a baby so that he stays around. Um, usually the baby doesn't fix the problem. Because um, the problem's bigger than that circumstance. Um, and very few stay around and man up. This condition is very, 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 very sad. We see a lot of it today. Adoption, fostering, abandonment, neglect. Sad circumstances exist. In large part because of many women acting like Leah. Having a baby will make him like me. And many men acting like Jacob. I will sleep with her even though I don't really care for her. That's a lot of what goes on today. Women acting like Leah, men acting like Jacob. Jacob, when you read this, it should be weird to you. Um, when you're thinking, okay, he hated her. She's pregnant again. I thought he hated her. But she's pregnant again. I thought, thought he hated her. She's pregnant again. I thought, how, how does this keep working? And we're learning things about Jacob that we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, however, while having a child does not fix a couple's problems, there is a God-given bond that exists um, and is intended to be sweet within the bonds of marriage. Uh, turn to Psalm 127, 3 through 5. Children are to be viewed as a blessing call to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth is something young couples here at Crosspoint take very seriously. You see from our baby dedications, 30 babies up here. Psalm 127, 3 through 5, it's a good time to go back and, and look at this again, that um, children are absolutely a blessing. And so when we see these children born in this chapter in Genesis, I don't want us to be like, oh, that's unfortunate. Oh, that one was a screw-up. Oh, that one was an accident. Oh, that one didn't come from the right... Children are a blessing from the Lord. Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. What does an arrow do? I'm a warrior with a stick. Someone just gives me an arrow, a bow and arrow. What do I now have the ability to do? Kill somebody from farther away. Kill somebody from farther away. Now let's, let's tweak it a little bit because I don't want us to say children allow us the ability to kill somebody further away. <laughs> what I'm saying is that they're like the arrows in the hands of a warrior. They, they allow you to, to reach further than you could on your own, to do more with them than you could on your own. I'll give an example in a second. Um, to kill people <laughs> further away. Uh, Verse 5, that's exactly right. The blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So there's, what's being said here is a quiver full of children is a blessing. It's a good thing. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The gate was the normal meeting place of a city where you dealt with business. If you go down to speak with your enemies and you go by yourself, you're not so intimidating. If you've got like 10 sons that are corn fed behind you and, uh, you know, got their arms bowed out and saying, we love you, Dad. We're right here. Don't forget we're right behind you. That's more intimidating. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Um, a family is blessed and able to do more than before and have a greater impact uh, with more children is what that's saying. Uh, 
Case in point, the Duggars. We all familiar with the Duggars? You familiar with the Duggars? Mom Duggar, walking around in a moo-moo, pregnant every 10 minutes. Um, this is uh, their family. I was watching an episode. I love it. I'm totally addicted to all that um, craziness that is the Duggars. But um, Josiah or whatever, one of their 20 kids, uh, they were building something as a house. They were building something as a house. They were building a house on their own. And um, it was time to run the gas line. And there's this trench that's like, you know, half a mile long. It's a pretty small trench. And uh, the dad's like, hey, Josiah, the six-year-old, why don't you run that gas line? And Josiah jumps down in the trench and starts rolling the gas line out and just takes off down. And I'm thinking, wow, he didn't have to hire someone to do that. That was, that was cool. His son just did it. And you see them building the house. They got like their four-year-olds with drills running, you know, sheetrock screws and stuff like that. And I'm thinking... That's kind of cool. They, they really did. I mean, they're breaking child labor laws all over the place, but they, they built their house on, on their own, and they saved a lot of money, and the kids are helping him, uh, his you know, teenage sons are helping him run rent houses and all this stuff. And it's a real, it's a cool example of, uh, of um, valuing children rightly and the impact that that has on a family. I, I've got an article that I um, Ran across, I, I read Drudge Report and some other news things fairly regularly just to keep up on what's going on in the world. If I want to be depressed in the middle of a good day, I usually read the news. And uh, this is something I found that was very encouraging. It's titled, Babies are a Drag on the Economy. This is for real. This is August of 2008. And so I printed it off and kept it because I thought, what an insightful commentary. Listen to this. Forget those plans to have a third child for the country because further increases in the birth rate could harm the economy, the nation's productivity watchdog has warned. This is in Australia. Fertility rate is at a 25-year high, and they're worried because it has a negative impact on the economy. A major analysis of the nation's increasing fertility rate said it was at its highest level for 25 years, but the Productivity Commission, the Productivity Commission, that's hilarious, yesterday warned further increases may aggravate rather than solve the problem of the aging population. So the population is aging and there's not enough babies. There's a, there's a generation or two that said, let's not have babies, and they're getting old, and there's a big gap. But they're saying that all these babies may be a drag as opposed to a help. This is because it will shift women out of the workforce while they care for babies, depressing labor supply, and reducing the taxation base as our population ages. This should make you want to throw up. The small number of extra babies born would make little difference to the rate of population aging, the commission said, and the women having the babies would be exacerbating the financial impacts on the government of the aging of the population because the tax breaks offered to parents to have children occur up front, while the cost savings of a bigger working population and bigger tax base from extra children are deferred until they're of working age. What's happened is Australia has said, we'll give you $5,000 for every baby you have. It's an incentive. We've seen it here in America. And... Uh, they're saying now, well, that's just upfront money, but over time, it's just going to be a drag on the taxation base as well as the working population. It goes on to say, the commission's views were of a particular interest as next month it is expected to hand down a much-anticipated report into whether the nation should adopt a paid maternity leave scheme. It might not be a good idea to encourage people to have babies is what they're saying. It found the $5,000 baby bonus, which is expected to be rolled into any new paid maternity leave, um, 
had had only a partial role in lifting the fertility rate. The baby bonus represented only 1% reduction in the lifetime cost of a first child, which would cost its parents at least $385,000 over its lifetime. I mean, the return on the investment is just not worth it, is what they're saying. They're saying you only get $5,000 up front. That baby's going to cost you $385,000. You do the math. Is it worth it? Any significant fertility effect from the bonus would suggest the presence of short-sightedness by parents about the lifetime cost of raising children, the report said. The commission said the family tax benefit, repay, uh, tax benefit payments averaging around $5,000 per family per year were more likely to have had a bigger impact on lifting the national fertility rate. These payments cut the cost of children by 8% a year, and the generosity of these benefits increased significantly after 2000. More than 285,000 births were registered last year, the highest level in 25 years. The commission said this was mainly a catch-up effect as women deferred childbirth to later in life. Having reached older ages, they're now having these postponed babies, said the commission. The fertility rate would be even higher, but for the effects of high house prices and better educated women, uh, the commission said. Let me reread that. The fertility rate would be even higher, but for the effects of high house prices and better educated women. Now you see what it says? Okay, good. More highly educated women can earn good money if they work rather than stay at home to care for children. And this had depressed a birth rate. The higher cost of housing meant it took longer to afford a house, which delayed childbearing. Babies a drag on the economy. That is not the way Christian people viewed babies. It's not, it's not right. I mean, that's just, I didn't have to go search for that. That just popped up. It's just, that kind of stuff's fairly common. Um, you don't consider, you be wise as you make plans, but you don't consider the value of a child dependent upon the return on the investment, in a sense. That, that's ridiculous. Um, Psalm 127, 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are not a drag on the economy. Children are a blessing in the eyes of the Lord. Now I want to caution something in these verses as we see God closing a womb and opening a womb. These verses are not communicating or implying that every closed womb is a cursed womb. And given the sensitivity of um, pregnancies and, and lost children and um, miscarriages and all kinds of other things, I want to be careful to make clear that this is not saying every closed womb is a cursed womb. It may mean that God is saying uh, the same thing he was saying to Jacob. Your plan is not my plan. God may be saying, trust me, follow me. I do have a plan. It doesn't mean that's easy, especially if you're in the situation where you're unable to have children. However, this says, God is saying, trust me and follow me because I have a plan. Look at verse 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this is verses 33 through 35 in Genesis 29. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. She conceived and bore again and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she's called his name Judah. Then she sees bearing. I think it's weird how Leah is hated by Jacob, yet regularly impregnated by him. What does this reveal about Jacob? 
He's not a man of impeccable character at this point in the narrative. Um, it doesn't take love for him to do what he's doing. In fact, he can do it even when there's hate, is what this is saying. That's the G-rated version. Most of what we hear from Leah has to do with who? Leah, yeah. Almost everything we hear from Leah has to do with Leah. Now my husband will love me. He has given me this time. My husband will be attached to me. Only on the fourth child does she finally praise the Lord, and we can't be certain as to how wholehearted that praise is. Uh, this time I will praise God. That's like getting one raise after another raise after another raise after another raise, another raise, talking each time about how much you deserve it, only acknowledging God's hand in your provision on the fifth raise. That's kind of what it's like. It's, it's, um, it is very backwards right here. And it reminds me of Eve in Genesis 3. She has her first child and she says, what does she say? I've gotten me a son. Look what I did. And then things don't go so hot because what happens with Cain and Abel? Cain. Yeah, kills Abel. Okay. And then what the third son, uh, Seth, when he's born, um, uh, she says, uh, the Lord has blessed me. And you see her change. And so uh, I hear what Leah is doing, and it kind of reminds me of the way that, that Eve was. Um, what is Leah holding on to in the first pregnancy? What does she say after, um, and Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben, uh, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. What is Leah holding on to there? What does she hope happens? Yeah, well, more than that. That he'll love her, yeah. She's holding on to, this baby will help Jacob to love me. Now, what about the second one? She conceived again and bore a son. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. Because he's heard that I'm hated, he gave me this son also. Now it's not so much about love as much as it is about what? He won't hate me. The first son is, hopefully he'll love me. The second son is, Hopefully, he won't hate me. And let's look at the third son. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now, this time, my husband will be attached to me. Stuck with me. So we look at the, the digression here. This is sad. She's, with the first son, she's saying, Hopefully, he'll still love me. With the second son, she's saying, Hopefully, he won't still hate me. With the third son, maybe he'll stick around. This is pretty sad. Then Leah ceases bearing. Look at 30 verse 1. This will be what we close with. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Um, the children from Leah produce envy in Rachel. This is not noble. This is an entitled Rachel stomping her feet saying, I want a baby. She feels entitled, and she's envious. Consider Philippians 2.3. We'll get back to it next week, but I'll just read it to you. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Her whole motive here is rivalry and conceit. Her sister, who's not even as pretty as she is, can have babies, and she can't. And it's obvious that Jacob's not the problem. Because there's a lot of babies already. See what's going on here? He's envious. Rachel's jealousy makes her feel a sense of entitlement. To whom does Rachel go to, to demand this baby? 
Jacob. What does this reveal about Rachel? Hank, what? What does this reveal about Rachel? Yes, Hank, that's right. Her focus is in the wrong spot. Where should she have been focused? God. She's asking the wrong dude. A few things. First, she's been blaming Jacob this whole time. This reveals that she's been blaming Jacob this whole time. As if he was doing something different. I don't really know. Uh, This would be an accusation of showing favor to Leah when God said Leah was what? Just the plot thickens. This is just more and more jacked up. God says Leah's hated. Rachel's saying, you're showing favor to Leah. And Leah's like, I feel hated, but I'm having babies. And it is just really, really messed up. Um, God says she's hated. Rachel's accusing uh, Jacob of showing her favor. And then what does this tell us about perspectives? Wrongly placed blame will occur when we're self-serving and we disregard what God's doing. What's important to take into account Are we even doing these things according to God's ways? Or have we abandoned God's grace? And then Rachel does not yet understand that children are a blessing from the Lord. She's just asking the wrong person. And then next week we'll pick up with uh, Jacob who plays the uh, I'm not God card. Um, She wants a baby and he says, I'm not God. Uh, When in reality he's he's blame shifting rather than giving a good excuse. Do you have any questions or thoughts on the study night? Are you encouraged by this uplifting story of family morale and values? Go and don't live like this. That'll be our our closing thing. Trust God in in the way that your family is ordered. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, this narrative that you have chosen to include in your breathed out word is depressing. Uh, I just confess, even in studying it, it's been weighty. You see all this disgusting living. You see a man who's, I mean, I think of all of the Psalms and the things that refer to, oh, God of Jacob. And now when I think back on Jacob, rather than praising Jacob, it does immediately lead me to you. Because if not for you, Jacob's life would have been a bigger train wreck. If not for you and grace, the grace that you give, uh, this whole situation would have been even worse. So when we consider the God of Jacob, it doesn't point us to put our hope in Jacob or Abraham or Isaac, but it points our hope to you. Lord, I pray that as we look at these hard texts tonight that are racy and depressing, Um, I pray that we wouldn't get caught up in those factors, but that we would see that you are God who is sovereign, who is in control, and even in the midst of calamity has a plan. And I'm thankful that what comes out of this is the 12 tribes of Israel who indicate then, you know, the 12 disciples and and, uh, it's from the tribe of Judah that Jesus comes. This is really important stuff that we're studying here. And so I pray that you would help us to... um, to see how your ways are indeed higher than our ways and how we are called to order our families after your design and not our own. And I pray that we would also walk away from this with more patience and understanding that you do things in your time. And when we take things into our own hands and we're impatient and we no longer trust you, uh, that we make a real mess of things. 
Lord, I thank you for the things that you've shared us, and I know that your word uh, does more than we can ever know. And so I pray that it would, um, that the seed that has been um, uh, spread would, would take root and that it would produce fruit for your glory as we're equipped for work and ministry. Lord, we exist for your glory, and uh, we thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.